Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Can I have until 9? Should it be a little bit before 9? Or Oh, yeah, you all came in. This is nice. This is very cozy. Um, cool. I feel like we're just hanging out in my living room right now. This is awesome. Um, so, yeah, like Michael said, we connected um, around this conversation of the things that might show up during a meditation practice. And I do a lot of work with yoga instructors. I'm also a yoga teacher. Um, But a lot of the work that I do with yoga instructors is helping them know a little bit more about trauma and how it impacts the body and the brain and um, the spirit and how these things might show up on the yoga mat and things that they can do to be more sensitive to it, um, to resource themselves as yoga instructors um, and to adapt the practice to make it a little bit more accessible to people. And one of those components, of course, is the meditation piece. So here today I'm just kind of expanding a little bit more on that meditation piece um, because it's its own its own thing. Um, but I kind of got onto this path just so you know a little bit about why I'm even here. Um, I got onto this path because in 2003 um, I was raped and um, I'd experienced past sexual abuse Um, But I didn't really have a name for it at that time because the way that it usually happens in our culture um, doesn't fit the narrative that we're shown in movies or in the media. Um, So it wasn't until I had that sort of like classic, if there's a classic form or sort of the Hollywood version of being sexually assaulted that I really was like, whoa, now I know what these other things are also. Um, But it was very um, destabilizing and, um, you know, I felt immediately like this this big split between all of the aspects of myself. So a distance from my physical body, a distance from my mind, and a distance from um, my soul or like my deepest part of myself. Um, And I experienced those things during the actual assault. And then um, I saw how they continued to change and um, impact me afterwards. And so I was really lucky to get connected um, within about a month to a yoga teacher, an acupuncturist, a chiropractor, a psychotherapist, and a massage therapist. I had like a team around me, which most people don't have in this world. Um, And so I was just very lucky because um, working at that level in a really holistic way was something that was already part of sort of my family's conversation. Not everyone, but some people in my family were really interested in that. And um, 
So I started doing this work to try to understand why did I feel this split and then how do I bring things back together and started to learn a lot more about what happens during trauma and what's happening to the nervous system and was working with healers who were actually like naming some of the things that I didn't have language for. I was sort of describing my experiences and they were um, really validating of them. So, um, and one of the biggest pieces that we'll talk about more today um, is the experience of going into freeze. So maybe you've, you're familiar with it and um, we can kind of check in a little bit about what are people's different experiences with this topic in general. But there isn't a whole lot of talk about freeze um, in the United States. There's not a lot of talk about a lot of these things. Um, but it's a really common experience for people who've gone through trauma, whether it's interpersonal violence or a motor vehicle accident or a surgery, um, all these different kinds of trauma, the, a very wide spectrum. Um, even emotional neglect as a child um, can take people into a place of freeze where there's a dissociation um, you know, from the experience and from the moment. Um, there can also be a sense of paralysis in the body. So um, there's such a deep, it's a very, very deep stillness actually. And so that's why meditation, I think, that's one of the reasons why meditation can feel really prohibitive for people who've experienced trauma, who've had the experience of going into freeze where they felt a sense of paralysis, um, they felt their, maybe a certain part of themselves leave their physical body. Um, and so it's really scary. And some of the things we do um, in these different contemplative practices is get really still and really quiet. And that experience can be really beautiful and powerful and healing um, when you have enough internal resources to, um, to go there. Um, but not everybody does. And so we'll talk about different ways we can help to build some of those resources and just simple tools um, that can help to anchor people in the present moment while um, allowing them to let what's gonna come up come up, but still having, as my teacher says, you know, one foot in the present as the other foot is um, experiencing or starting to receive some of the traumatic memories that may show up. Um, so the other thing that I think was really interesting is during this time of crisis, I was also having um, a lot of gratitude come up, you know, and so there can be this sense of people who've experienced trauma as victims, um, as very fragile and vulnerable, and yes, they can be all of those things, but there's also um, a lot of resilience that's coming online in the immediate aftermath um, of trauma for people and that's what helps them continue living. Um, and people make a lot of different choices about how they go forward after trauma. And sometimes those choices um, are in their long-term best interest and sometimes they're making choices that will just allow them to feel like they can get through the next day. Um, and so we'll talk about how do we look at some of the ways that people cope with a trauma-informed lens. So understanding that people will make different unconscious choices to survive after trauma, you know, just living day, daily life um, that people um, from the outside may not understand. Things like um, using substances or food 
um, even self-harm, different kinds of addictions, um, whether it's to substance or practice, um, and just kind of reframing that a little bit. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is so important because we know with people who have addiction, um, a wide spectrum of different kinds of addiction, one of the underlying causes for a significant majority of people is past experiences of trauma. So um, it's important, I think, that we talk about that and we start to kind of reframe that as a culture um, because we're looking at the most, maybe the most vulnerable population, um, in some ways further isolating them by making certain kinds of judgments about how they choose to cope. Um, so as we talk today, though, whether or not you've experienced trauma, maybe somebody you love or care about has, or maybe you've just had um, some just really painful or overwhelming experiences, the conversation can stir things. Um, it can stir things that are recent. It can stir things that are old. It could stir things that you aren't going to remember until today. Um, and that's another thing that we'll talk about. You know, the people in our room, in our classes or spaces that don't have an explicit memory of trauma until they start to do really deep work and then things reveal themselves. So really take care of yourself in the ways that you know how. And that might be... Um, laying down, that may be going in the back of the room and moving, that may be stepping out, um, that may be just kind of like pulling your attention back a little bit and focusing a little bit more on yourself and less on the words that I'm saying. Um, and all of that is really welcome here. Um, let's see what else do I want to say about this. I do have some handouts for you. I think I'll give them in, when we come back for our second session, because sometimes when I give them in the morning, then everybody just starts like looking through them, and that's really cool, and I, I get it. Um, but this may be, um, this, this is maybe more, we just can start the conversation here, and then you can have those packets as resources for later. Um, and I would say another few things to keep in mind is that for me and I can't make guarantees for everybody else, but I always approach this as a really um, confidential space. So if you feel inclined to share something and maybe you've never shared about whatever it is you're going to choose to share about today, that we as a group make a sort of intention or commitment to just really hold people's stories and experiences here in this space. Um, and to, you know, I invite you to just make it your own. So there may be things that I talk about that don't really resonate or you don't see how they might apply to the teaching of meditation and that's okay you know if you get like one little thing out of today then I think that hopefully I've done my job or even if you realize that you disagree with a lot of what I say um, and you feel clear about what you believe and how you teach and how you practice then then that's great too so just really making it your own and letting it kind of filter through the things that you've studied and learned thus far um, and I, in turn, just a self-disclosure about my meditation practice, since I'm at a meditation training, I'm really new on the path of meditation. So probably didn't start having like a more formal practice until about three years ago. Um, and I would say largely that was because I really struggled to be still in my own body. And I think that it took me about 10 years of very active work um, around trauma and how it was impacting my 
energy system and my nervous system and my body and my attitude and all of these things where I finally got to a place where I felt like my container was was pretty solid and was a really safe place for me to be so I could start to go a little bit further and for me that further felt like going more towards meditation. Um, for some people they may start with a meditation practice and may find over time that they are becoming more interested in physical movement or exploring the body in different movement um, based ways but for me it was sort of starting with my body and working um, on a more kind of psychological level as well and then getting curious about meditation and why I was resisting it a little bit so and I still resist it a little bit um, and I'm fortunate to have a really great teacher who supports me during those those ebbs and flows of how I feel about the practice um, so one of the things about trauma is that it and, and we're gonna we're going to kind of talk about it in a more generalized way this morning because I feel like it's too early to talk about statistics and the different forms. I want to like let us wake up and have some food in our stomachs. Um, but one of the things about trauma is there's this really wide spectrum and in our society um, we've kind of reduced it to a few different kinds of events um, and we've reduced it to an event-based experience and, and it's not always an event. It could be um, a way that we were raised. It could be um, an illness that is ongoing. Um, and yes, it could be a motor vehicle accident, and it could be witnessing um, violence or experiencing interpersonal violence, but it's a really wide spectrum. And what's also interesting is people who are carrying around really high levels of stress um, and have maybe chronic or toxic amounts of stress in their system, that can start to look a lot like some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So, and, and I can't speak to what stress levels look like in Canada, um, but I know in the United States, just over the border, they're like really, really high and people are very chronically stressed out. Um, and so some of the responses that the nervous system has um, for someone who's carrying around toxic amount of stress may look a lot like somebody who's experienced a pretty big capital T trauma. Um, so, widening our perspective of what we want to be sensitive to is really important because um, it's not just that one person in the room who has a history of sexual assault, but it could be a lot of people in the room who are holding something really big inside that may get stirred um, through these practices. Um, one of the most important things I think about trauma is the way in which it disrupts the autonomic nervous system functioning. Um, and we we talk, you know, I don't know how much in meditation, but in, in the yoga practice, we talk a lot about um, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and these this autonomic nervous system is sort of regulating arousal and a lot of the basic um, daily functions of the body and the brain and it can become really, really disrupted um, through trauma and for some time afterwards. And so we may see people who are always in a state of hypervigilance, um, always in a place of feeling anxious, 
Um, we may also see people who are always in a place of um, low energy and exhaustion and depression. Um, and a lot of this is due to the way in which their nervous system has been disrupted by the trauma and then maybe the lack of resources that they were able to access afterwards to help um, restore balance. Um, one of the kind of big theories we'll talk about is um, this theory that what is a cause of post-traumatic stress disorder for humans is our um, inability to complete experiences and traumatic events at a nervous system level. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the afternoon, but there is a person, a doctor named Peter Levine. I don't know, do any of you know Peter? Um, he's written a lot of really incredible books, and if you're just interested in the physiology of the body and different ways to work with it. Um, two of his, two of my favorite books of his um, that are in your packets on your resources page, but um, just in case, are Waking the Tiger and In an Unspoken Voice. And they're really great resources because you don't have to have any sort of like clinical training um, to connect with them. And that's part of what I really love about him. Um, and his way of doing the work is it's very accessible. We all have bodies, we all have nervous systems, we all experience um, different states of activation and settling. And so it's a really easy and accessible way to start to think about um, how we can restore balance from the inside out and how we can actually um, kind of clear the pathway for our nervous system to do what it was designed to do, which is to rebalance itself. Um, but he, how he arrived at this idea that humans, um, this incomplete processing of trauma gets in the way and, and creates the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is that he studied animals in the wild um, because he was working with a lot of trauma survivors and seeing that they you know, carried all of these um, experiences from the trauma into their life five years, ten years, many decades later and they were still acting and interacting with the world as if the trauma was still happening. And so he thought, how is it that animals in the wild who are routinely um, exposed to threat are not experiencing or exhibiting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, and so he did a lot of studies of animals in their natural environment and studying of prey and predators. And what he found was that they would, you know, go into these similar um, nervous system survival responses, same phases that humans were going through, um, whether it was fight or flight. And when those you know, two options were not available, whether because um, the um, there was just no other way to escape or that they failed, um, the prey couldn't fight back or it couldn't escape, that it would go into freeze. And so um, we know that humans go through these processes as well. And um, when they were going into freeze, he was watching what their experience was in freeze. And I have a video that is in the resources page as well where you can actually see an impala go into freeze and you can watch some of the physiological things that are happening with its eyes, with its breathing, uh, with its lack of movement, um, with the just way that its whole body is very limp, and then you're able to watch it actually come out of freeze. But what he saw was that after um, animals went into freeze, a lot of times in the wild, 
there will either be a situation where the predator leaves to um, go and get the rest of its group or to go and get its babies and then bring them back to the prey for the meal. Um, or other animals come into the scene wanting that prey as well and it creates enough of a distraction that there is this moment and opportunity for the prey animal to actually escape. So what he saw, um, and in this video that I have linked because it's my favorite video, um, this cheetah attacks an impala and then um, some baboons get involved and, and a hyena gets involved. A lot of other animals get involved and you're watching, you're like, I can't believe this is real, but it is. Um, first the hyenas get involved and they really wanna, they want the impala and the cheetah's able to get them to go away and then the baboons get involved and they chase off the cheetah and then they leave and they leave the impala and you start to see the impala's eyes start blinking after they've been frozen open you see it take these huge belly breaths like its belly has been completely still and now it's getting really big um, you can see different movement happening through its body and then all of a sudden it starts shaking and it looks almost like a seizure um, and the animal shakes for anywhere you know, what he's seen is anywhere from, you know, 30 seconds up to maybe five or six minutes. And then once it's done with this whole body shaking, it just leaps off into the distance, you know, and running like they run, very beautiful and graceful as if nothing happened. And so he studied this time and time again, and they've watched how the prey could rejoin with the group and wasn't isolated from the group, didn't have um, exhibit any sort of symptoms that something was really wrong. And the idea was in a way the animal sort of shaking off the trauma um, at a nervous system level and taking all of that intense energy that gets built up inside of the body and releasing it through this really intense movement. Um, and so his conclusion was from watching this, was that humans, um, because of the way society is set up, um, because there's a lot of ways in which we're told um, and we learn to inhibit a lot of our natural, innate, and organic impulses and responses, that we actually kind of keep a lot of those responses inside of us and they get stuck instead of released. And sometimes we could see that in um, maybe a car accident where somebody is immediately restrained their physical body um, maybe they're put on a stretcher and their body is restrained and they may even be given some sort of drug to help calm them down um, and so that might prevent them from having a more um, complete processing of some of the trembling and shaking that may want to happen after a big overwhelming life-threatening event um, but it may also be the case, um, as we see with children or um, people who are experiencing domestic violence, that there is no end to the event of trauma, that it's an ongoing thing. And so particularly with children, they aren't going to be safe enough. And there, it requires so much safety to let yourself go through this process. Um, so they aren't safe enough to start to release the trauma because they have to stay very vigilant and they have to stay very self-protective because they don't know when the next <coughs> violence or abuse will happen. Um, so there's very um, intelligent reasons why we actually 
contain a little bit and why we don't just immediately go into these processes. And then there's also just the fact that our society is just now starting to talk about this as a concept that maybe we could be allowing for a little bit more physical um, processing after trauma, that we don't have to actually calm people down, that maybe it would be most helpful if we let them really um, escalate and emote and tremble and then, um, and then see what happens next. Um, so if you're curious about learning more about that, Peter's books go much further into that process. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about it as it relates to um, meditation in a little bit. Um, so one of the things I do is I start talking. I create a lot of notes. And then I realized that there's just a lot to say about like one thing. Um, so I'm just gonna, sometimes I'll be skipping some of my pages, but I will try to stay um, very on point for you. Um, so when I was driving up here, I was, I was actually listening to Michael's podcast, um, which I recommend in driving because when there's like traffic or disturbance, it was actually very helpful. Um, I was like, cool, I have more time to finish this full podcast because I'm stuck here at the border. Um, but what, there's, there's three things that I was thinking that I wanted to be sure to talk about. Um, because these practices and meditation as a practice specifically um, they bring a lot of rewards for people who embark upon them. Um, physical rewards is kind of a weird word. Um, benefits is a better word, a lot of benefits. Um, and those benefits are um, very, very healing. Um, the practice of meditation, and again, I'm so new in so many ways to it. Um, but the, the benefits can be physical benefits, and we see that there can be pain relief, um, that there can just be more um, flexibility in the body, more strength in the body. Um, the benefits can be mental, that people can feel a certain level of um, control or um, ease around thoughts and mental patterns as they arise and feel like they have more tools to work with them. Um, they may be more um, spiritual or more subtle or, or energetic, that a person may experience a, a feeling of connecting with something bigger or beyond themselves. So there are all of these benefits or rewards of sitting and embarking and staying with this kind of practice, but there's also a lot of risks. Um, and I think that the risks are there not just for trauma survivors, um, but possibly for all people. And when these risks that I'll talk about start to come up, um, a lot of people will then leave the practice. And um, because maybe there isn't enough support around them to kind of stay with what's coming up that feels risky or feels unsafe or feels uncomfortable. Um, and so it's important that we know about trauma and that we know about its impact on the nervous system um, because it creates significant changes and it creates a unique set of vulnerabilities for our meditation students or our peers or people in our family um, that we want to have in our awareness when we're teaching or when we're practicing. Um, one is, of course, the relationship to the body. And it was really wonderful that Michael mentioned either during or after, I don't remember when it was anymore, um, mentioned that you know the body could be this sort of home base 
or touchstone, but for a lot of people with a trauma history, the body is actually seen almost like an enemy. Um, we see that uh, very, very often with people who've experienced interpersonal violence where the violence was actually done to the body. Um, and so the way in which the body experienced the violence makes the body feel unsafe. Um, the way in which the body responded to experiences of violence um, can make going into the body feel like it's an unsafe place to be. Um, and we know that there are these sort of somatic memories that the body holds that can get opened through um, making physical contact with different parts of our body, stretching different parts of our body, or even breathing into different areas of our body. And so students that I work with will talk about that they just avoid deep breaths into certain areas of their body. They kind of have a way of protecting the area of their body that feels most sensitive um, from, from feeling, from sensation, from breath. Um, so starting to go into the body and sort of explore this, this kind of wilderness inside for a lot of people is very destabilizing um, and can feel very, very unsafe. Um, and it can also be a bit re-traumatizing for people without the right sort of container. Um, additionally, because of the way that trauma impacts the nervous system, um, without sufficient support afterwards, without a place where somebody can process on a pretty deep physiological level all that the trauma stirred inside of them in terms of their physical experience, their um, belief patterns, their connection to their self or their soul or their inner essence, um, it can be very difficult to sit and to go inside and to be still and to just set thoughts aside as they come up or see them as just like a cloud that you're not attaching to and it's moving on because their body their, at a nervous system level is often delivering them ongoing messages that they're not safe. So they will be potentially um, predisposed to basically be doing an ongoing threat detection. And so something as simple as closing the eyes, for a lot of people, everything inside of them is telling them um, that that is not a safe thing to do, that they need to be able to constantly like look around and know where they are in space and that that looking around helps them feel and remember that they're safe. Um, so that's not a conscious thing that's happening for people. Um, and so when we're their teachers and we're asking them to do these things, it's important to um, provide a variety of options, which we'll talk about, and to normalize a person's desire to orient themselves into a space and to also normalize, like Michael did, that the body doesn't always feel like home base. And so what could be the home base? If it's not the body, what are the other resources that we could suggest um, or invite them to explore as their home base and it may just be the contact of their legs on the ground or the feeling of their cushion beneath them or a point on the wall or something in the room that feels very resourcing. Um, a lot of my students when we sit and when I work with students it's um, sometimes it's one-on-one -on -one, um, but I've also done a lot of groups where we work together for four to eight weeks 
and the practice is a lot of yoga asana, but um, it always involves meditation as well. And usually during the meditation, they're holding something in their hand. And that's been a way um, for the students I'm working with um, who are primarily sexual assault survivors. That's been a really great tool for them. That's what they've reported back. Um, and so I will start by inviting people to bring something from their home that is a resource and something that has maybe a little bit of weight that they can hold in their hand that they can even touch um, and feel like the texture of it during the massage. So thinking of different ways that we could um, create home bases or anchoring or grounding in the practice. Um, and then one of the biggest things is the impact of um, trauma at sort of a soul level, which um, is so personal for each person. And not everybody um, feels like they have a soul or they might use a different word to describe their like innermost self. Um, but one of the things that trauma provokes is um, this very big question of why me? And it's a pretty difficult question to answer because we may never know. Um, and it's a question that a lot of people are grappling with for some time. Um, and it may be, um, you know, a question that they get glimpses of not really an answer, but maybe some insight around not why the event happened to them, but maybe the insights start to come in um, the resources that they may have to help them transform this experience and put them onto a path um, that they are um, really glad to be on. Um, but the overall question of why me um, and this kind of big existential question of um, why would something so horrible happen to me, whether it is the loss of a child or um, being sexually assaulted or a diagnosis of a terminal disease, it, we just, it starts uh, stirring some of those questions. Um, and so it's a big question. It's a very vulnerable thing to be looking at. And I think it's also a really useful thing to look at it because um, it's happening um, for people uh, kind of unconsciously and so what I think is amazing about a practice like meditation or yoga or other contemplative practices is we start to get a space um, where we can let these questions start to come up and we are on kind of a path or have a practice now where there is a lot of room to start doing that kind of exploring. Um, but because it's so personal and because there's only one person who can really understand the depth of that question and can find sort of their own meaning out of that question, it's important, I think, to keep in mind as a teacher when we're framing um, some of these uh, philosophical teachings um, to find ways to um, let everybody feel like they can enter into that conversation. And um, and again, with, with meditation, it's different, and I don't know how all of you teach um, or plan to teach. Um, it shows up a lot in yoga, um, and sometimes it shows up with people who 
maybe haven't grappled for a very long time with some of the teachings that they're delivering. Um, and they can be delivered in a way that is, this is the way, this is the interpretation. Uh, my interpretation is the interpretation. And so it's great to have your own interpretation of different kinds of texts and teachings, um, but also being open to the possibility that um, there's room for other there's room for other perspectives, and it may be that if we leave a little bit more room in the way that we're presenting material, um, it will allow somebody to come in a little bit further because they feel like they have some space, um, and that their voice and their perspective and their experience um, is relevant to how they're receiving the teachings. I feel like that's a really broad statement. Um, let me try to give a more specific <laughs> example. Would be like. Um, talking about karma, which um, I don't know if you do a whole lot of talking. We did yesterday. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so I will proceed with caution because I don't know what you said. But, um, okay. So, um, my sense, not having been here, is that you presented it in a very beautiful, powerful, open <laughs> way. <laughs> I think you did a great job. Um, and this is more, this can be something, um, do any of you practice yoga or have a yoga practice? There's a lot, okay. So um, this might be something that's like just happening in the United States, um, but probably, probably right? Trump. Um, there's Trump, so some very bizarre things are happening just a couple miles over the border, but um, so I had a feeling Trump would come up at some point today, so I'm glad that we've dealt with Trump a little bit and we've named him um, and we can set him aside. So, um, but something that can happen with yoga teachers in the United States is that they can get this attitude of um, they're the teacher and they're kind of up here and their students are down here. Um, and there's a really like big hierarchy that's happening in some spaces. And there can be this, maybe it's like a desire to deliver material in a way that's just like, this is how it is and we don't need to grapple with it because grappling would be really complicated and it would be confusing and I don't have all of the answers. So I'm just gonna tell you that this is the way and hope that you just follow that advice or that teaching. And so I've heard karma come up um, more often than I would like to hear it come up and often in ways that is very, I think really like limited and a very narrow understanding of what karma may be and a very simplistic interpretation of cause and effect um, that that I think um, doesn't do the larger ideas around karma any justice and ends up feeling, I think, for people who are listening to their teacher talk in a very like simplistic uh, way, um, it can be sort of victim blaming in a way um, if it's not delivered with a lot of sensitivity. Um, and so that's something that I've seen in classes where I really try to invite people, like if you're going to talk about karma, you should really have spent a lot of time studying it and reading about it and asking yourself a lot of these questions. Um, and just imagine for the person who's in the room 
who just received a diagnosis of cancer or was sexually assaulted six months ago and is trying to reorganize their whole life, how it would feel um, to hear your interpretation of karma. Um, and I don't have like the answer for them for how they should teach it, um, but it's just one of those, one of the ways I approach some of the ideas or if I'm bringing in any sort of philosophy is to present it as, you know, this is, this is my interpretation and you can take it or leave it or take bits of it or you can reject it and or make it your own or do further study. Um, and what has also been effective is if we're talking about any sort of like philosophical teachings is to give the students reading material as well so that we're all entering the conversation um, in a more equitable way. So it's not just me showing up and I have the information and they don't have access to it, but maybe we're all kind of, we've all read the same text and we're all talking about it. And that seems to have been really, really helpful. Um, so I now kind of want to hear your recording about if you recorded your karma talk yesterday. I did. I'll send it to you right okay. away. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Is everything, are we okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm very curious. So, um, and, and I had that sense just because I, I listened to, I'm pretty attuned to um, when people um, have sort of like a black and white approach to teaching anything. Um, that usually doesn't work for me so well. So um, I was listening to Michael's recordings and I was like, oh yeah, okay, there's, there's so much room here. Um, and I think it is about just creating a lot of space, um, creating that space physically, creating that space for people mentally and emotionally, um, and creating that space for them on a more subtle or spiritual or energetic level. Um, so as we start to invite people to quiet their mind, to go within, to be still, um, there's these pieces that we can assist people with um, putting into place, um, but a lot of the work people are going to have to do on their own. So we're not going to just heal everybody's trauma by um, providing options in meditation. There's going to be a lot of other work, and the meditation practice and other practices will all be complementary of their work. Um, but um, we can't really ask people to do this internal looking or stillness or presence um, if they don't yet have enough physical um, internal safety to drop their unconscious need to be vigilant at all times. Um, it's hard to be with oneself, um, to be invited to just be with yourself and to notice what's happening inside if you don't have a certain degree of self-love or self-compassion, which um, sometimes people don't, people don't have after trauma. There can be a lot of um, self-hatred or self-blame. So going in and looking inside and being with, with themselves doesn't always feel like it's a nourishing place to be. Um, as well, um, if people don't have a sense of belonging um, to 
the world or to a group or to a community, um, it can also be hard to to go inside and to look within and to feel like there's enough safety in the environment to do those things, um, which is why I think group practices are a really uh, ideal way for a lot of people to start their meditation practice. That's how I started. Um, so I was able to kind of be with a group and feel that sense of belonging and get that um, comfort with the practice with others sort of as witnesses, um, which I think can create a sense of greater safety to go further within um, because you're not alone. Um, and one of the things we know with people during trauma and afterwards is there's this very intense sense of isolation, feeling isolated from oneself and feeling really isolated from all of the people in the world around them. Um, and then it can also be challenging for people to um, start to grapple with some of these existential or philosophical questions or teachings when they don't have enough sort of ego strength established inside. Um, when looking at those questions might immediately lead them into their trauma content. So, um, so those are just things that we're going to keep in mind as we're, as we're sitting in our own practice mm -hmm. and um, as we're working with others, how can we introduce these teachings and this practice in a way that um, recognizes all of the um, capacity for healing and integration and balance and presence that can come, but also those, those risks and possibilities for um, the more painful aspects of our life experience to start to show themselves and then and to also normalize that, whether someone's been um, practicing for one year or 15 years, these things can emerge and how we can normalize that the body has its own timeline, the nervous system has its own timeline that doesn't always follow um, in a linear way. Actually, it doesn't follow in a linear way. And, um, and things emerge sometimes when we least expect them and new things emerge that we thought maybe we were um, done with and they might come up 20 years into our practice um, and it can be surprising um, but that's when I always think it's valuable to kind of go back to looking at the physiology of the body um, and reframing these things that come up that are painful or difficult or even like the return of symptoms that we thought we were done with um, instead of being something that's bad as it's also possible that we've established enough safety or grounding or resourcing within ourselves that the body knows it's now, um, it's, a, it's an okay time to start to allow these things to actually emerge because we've opened up enough because there's enough ground beneath us. Um, so these things come up and now we have something new to work with. Um, I think that's all I want to say about that. How are people doing? Do you need to like stretch or move? Let's maybe a minute stretch or so.